Welcome to the Expository Word Podcast, featuring classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Today, Kimber continues teaching through the book of Samuel, and our hope is that you will be challenged and encouraged by listening in. Let's turn now to Kimber. How do you spell security? Anybody can spell it for me? That's how you spell security. Can you spell relief? How about religion? If you weren't here this morning, you really think this is a crazy place. I think this is a bunch of kooks here. We're talking about the covenant. The application of chapter 20, which we worked through this morning, is about the covenant. It's a chapter centered around the covenant. The passage teaches us about steadfast covenant loyalty. Again, I'd like to remind you that one of the signs of the last days is people will be covenant breakers. People will go back on their word, back out on their commitments. And notice, you cannot have a relationship with God apart from a covenant with Him. Old, New Testament's the same. In the covenant, He promises to be your God and you promise to be His people. Even as we took communion in the covenant meal, God is saying, hey, the, 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 the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is still enables you to be my child. And, and then we were saying back, yes, Lord, and I examine my life to see if I'm living worthy of the Lord. And yes, it's my desire that I would uh, be one of your covenant people and live for you with all my heart. And chapter 20, the relationship between Jonathan and David is basically dealing with a horizontal covenant. And this morning, we looked at aspects of the horizontal covenant uh, as it went to a vertical covenant, our relationship with God. And we took that home, uh, the idea of, of, of several key principles. For instance, we considered these very quickly. That the covenant provides refuge in times of trouble. And God provides refuge in times of trouble for His covenant people. That the covenant is something that assures loyalty, unheard of faithfulness. It's uncanny, the kind of faithfulness that uh, the covenant provides. It's, it's something that's out of this world. It's something that's culture shocking. It's something that's w- different than you've ever heard of. And that's the, the covenant that God has with us. Something else is, is uh, it demands costly commitment. Now, just let me add a few things that I didn't add this morning. When we think about weddings, I've often preached from Jeremiah chapter 9, which says this in the 23rd and 24th verse, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But if you're going to boast about anything, boast about this, that you understand and know me, that I am the Lord who exercises steadfast covenant loyalty, justice and righteousness on the earth, and in these things I delight. And one of the things that I've often said concerning points B and C at wedding ceremonies is as you make these vows before God and before these witnesses, let me assure you that 15 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, God delights, He delights when His people show covenant loyalty on this direction after they've made this promise because it's after the way God has been loyal this way. We reflected, we reflect God when we are steadfastly loyal to our covenants this way. Now, it may mean it be costly that you live for something, a principle higher than your own cause. And it assures loyalty and also it provides peace. The kind of peace that no matter what happened in the world, David and Jonathan, no matter where they were, they were at peace with one another. They were committed to one another. Now, um, knowing that, I, I would like to throw a, a John R. Stott quote at you again that we used last week because it ties in so well. And Stott makes this comment, it's extraordinarily important in any Christian view of life to realize that self-fulfillment must never be permitted to become the controlling issue. The issue is service, the service of real people. The question is, how can I be most useful, not how can I feel most useful? The goal is, how can I best glorify God by serving His people, not how can I be most, feel most comfortable and appreciated while engaging in some acceptable form of Christian ministry? I mean, this just nails it on the head. 
of, of, of what's a lot, wrong, a lot wrong in Christianity today. The assumption is how shall the Christian service to which God calls me be enhanced by my daily death, by my principal commitment to take up my cross and die, not how shall the form of service I am considering enhance me. That gets us back, friends, to this point. Right here, point C, the covenant demands costly commitment. And that is that we are called into a covenant relationship with God to be His people, and that means that we have to live out the life that His people should live, regardless of whether or not it's what we like. And that is so very important. Now, the same thing holds true in regards to our friendships. And what I want to do is sort of do uh, 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 something that may, may be a little bit hard to follow, but I want us to I want you to work hard and pay attention to this because I want us to find out tonight from the life of David and Jonathan, are you a good friend in the biblical sense? People say, we need to think biblically about finances, and we do. People say, we need to think biblically about um, uh, raising our kids, and we do. People say, we need to think biblically about... Uh, any, you name the subject. Now, all I'm saying tonight is, are you thinking biblically about friendship? Are you thinking biblically about friendship, or are you going to fall into the same mold of the world? You see, worldliness is when you think unbiblically about life. Worldliness is not necessarily where you go or how you dress. It's when you think unbiblically about life. Do you have a biblical thought pattern about friendship that's right? For instance, if you think you don't need friends, you're not thinking biblically. If you don't think that you don't need people in your life to encourage you or to instruct you or to rebuke you, you're wrong. You're very wrong according to the Scriptures. No man is an island. We're not out there left by ourselves. The whole purpose for the church is for us to be gathered together. We need each other. To think that you don't need someone is to think that you, that you don't need the body of Christ is, is to make a terrible assumption in your life. In fact, the Bible makes some, some fantastic statements about friendship. For instance, the, the Bible says that a good Christian friend, a wise person, will be very helpful to your Christian walk. A wise man walks with the wise but a companion of fools will be destroyed, Proverbs 13.20. Now, in Proverbs 1, the writer is going, listen, my son, don't go with those bad guys, those bad people that stay up all night drinking and carousing and doing bad things. Listen, my son, go with the good people. That's what he says over and over. In fact, Christians all throughout the Scriptures are told to sincerely love each other from the heart. There's all kinds of one another's bear each other's burdens and care for one another and love each other and instruct one another and rebuke one another and be committed to one another with brotherly love. And in Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, it's very important. Uh, there's a, a tremendous emphasis laid on making sure that you have good friends. Now, this morning we talked about the covenant and we sort of, I, I tell you, I, I really, I don't know if you caught it, but I was really intentioned this morning because it was about horizontal covenant and we turned it to a vertical covenant in the message. I really believe that's the purpose there. I think that it's, first and foremost, we must look at the covenant relationship this direction before we can look at it this way. But tonight I want to look at the covenant relationship this way. And are you a covenant friend? Have you entered that? By the way, did you know that the four people that joined, the three people that joined our church tonight and the eight that joined last week and the two that will join next week if they come, do you know that what they've done is they've entered into a covenant? You know that there's a covenant statement we even have? And we've entered into a covenant with one another. And that covenant is, is, is laid out that we are interested and concerned for discipleship and spiritual growth to take place in one another's life. Now I say this also because recently I spoke a, a sermon on Wednesday night on, on principles of friendship from Proverbs. And it's really dawned on me that uh, uh, David's son Solomon, who wrote, writes most of Proverbs may have written a lot that he said about friendship from hearing stories of old dad talking about his love for Jonathan. It very well may be the case. 
And so I think that as we take this Jonathan and David story of 1 Samuel 20, look at it through the four principles of Proverbs and see how it washes out in our own life. But before we do, I'd like to ask this question. Have any of you entered into a covenant relationship with anybody? Have you ever entered into a covenant relationship with anybody? Well, if any of you got one of these on your fingers, I think that it means that you have. But also, have you ever entered into a covenant relationship where you say, you know, I'm making a commitment to you as a friend. You're going to be my friend, and I'm going to care about you throughout life. That's what David and Jonathan did. A covenant relationship to one another as friends. You know, let me tell you something. It's not heard of in our culture, but can I tell you that that may be a good thing to do? So, you know, I'm making a special commitment. You're going to be my friend. I don't want to get silly or sarcastic or, 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 or syrupy about the whole thing. But I do think that it would be a good idea to say, you know what? We are told to have good friends. I'm committed to you. David and Jonathan certainly did that. So looking first off at some principles from Proverbs, allow me to, um, to work. The, I'm going to have to really work these overheads carefully because it's going to be difficult to go back and forth between the two, and also including one from 1 Samuel 20, our outline. I'm going to try to put all of this together, and it may be a little bit sloppy here on the overhead, but uh, we're going to keep your fingers in 1 Samuel 20, and let's turn then, uh, you know, no, no, you you stay in 1 Samuel 20, I'll work Proverbs on the overhead, all right? You don't have to worry about that, I've got Proverbs on the overhead. I want you to notice what C.S. Lewis says about friendship. C.S. Lewis observed that if one's only interest is in having a friend, he can never have one. That while the gaze of two lovers is fixed on each other, the gaze of two friends is fixed on a third object by which both are fascinated. You stop and think about it, that's how friends become friends. They're both focused on some hobby, they're both focused on some sport. And of course, in the Christian life, the focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's two people, and I'm going to tell you, this is what's so beautiful about Jonathan being in his late 40s or 50s and David being a teen, and them being such good friends. It crosses racial barriers, it crosses age barriers, it crosses, it crosses political barriers. I read of Chuck Colson becoming very close friends with people that, that vote differently than he did, that he never thought could ever have been a friend, but because of the fact that Jesus Christ is the object of their love and their commitment. And the fact is that we've got to realize this. Now, according to Proverbs, I want you to see this. According to Proverbs, a good friend is constant and faithful. You, now, now watch this. A good friend is constant and faithful. In fact, what the Scripture says in Proverbs, fair-weather friends are not true friends. In many of these verses, I want you to see that fair-weather friends are not true friends. Just look, at with, look with me at a few. It says, the poor are shunned by their neighbors, but the rich have many friends. Wealth bring many friends, but a poor man's friends deserts him. And, and I want you to notice also, while we're on this, down in chapter 19, verses 6 and 7, many curry favor with a ruler, and everyone is the friend of a man who gives gifts. The poor man is shunned by all his relatives. How much more do his friends avoid him, though he pursues them with pleading? They're nowhere to be found. And then, a poor man pleads for mercy, but a rich man answers harshly. The point here is this. In Proverbs, that's not a good friend. It's not a good friend to coddle up to the rich. It's not a good friend to, to just like somebody when they're successful or when they're popular. But in fact, a true friend will, will go against these principles, and fair-weather friends are, are not the best kind. Now, let me finish this before uh, we turn to see how Jonathan and David did this. Also, a good friend, number one, is constant and faithful. Do you want to know a principle of friendship? Write it down. He's constant and faithful. Do you remember one of the points? The uncanny loyalty of David, of Jonathan to David. Now keep this in mind. True friends cling to you closer than a brother. And true friends, and therefore, don't forsake old-tested lifelong friendships. When trouble or calamity comes, it's better to go to a tested friend's house than even your own family. Now, that is very interesting in light of what Jesus Christ said. 
They said, your brother and your mother are outside there wanting to talk to you. And he goes, who is my brother and my mother? But them that do the will of God. It's very interesting that Jesus at times seems to be rather um, tough on his own relatives. But I want you to notice that uh, the Bible says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And a friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. Look, at a true friend is closer than a brother, and a friend loves at all times. Now, stop with me and look back to chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, and let's just see if, if, this, if this principle is true in their life of constant constance or, or, or commitment. You can see in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 20 and verse 1, David flees. He's no doubt scared. He's deeply concerned. He runs to Jonathan and he says, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I been wronged? Your father, that he's trying to take my life. Jonathan, of course, doesn't think so. says, No, no, you're wrong. In verse 3, David says, No, no, I'm right. And then in verse 4, says, All right, you might be right, is the way I, you can sort of read this. Now, notice something. There in chapter 20, Jonathan doesn't think he's in trouble, but he gets convinced by his friends. But go back to chapter 19 and look at the first verse. Said Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him, My father, Saul, is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and, and tell you what I find out. And then notice verse 4. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has, been, has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the, the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel. And you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? And Saul listened to Jonathan, took this oath, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. Now, go back to chapter 18 and look at verse 1. See if he's constant and faithful. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. And he loved him as himself. This is right after the story of David and Goliath, by the way. Jonathan witnessed this. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him go. And Jonathan made a covenant with David. Notice this. Jonathan initiates the covenant because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with the tunic and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, something you see in Saul's life is Saul makes this oath in chapter 19 and verse 6. I swear now, now I promise you, no, 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 David won't be hurt. And the next thing you know, he's throwing another spear. But Jonathan... Not being in that rash type of vow like his father, Jonathan makes this commitment in chapter 18. In chapter 19, he follows through. In chapter 20, he follows through. In fact, I want you to go to chapter 23 and look at something. Go all the way over to chapter 23. You see, constance or, or faithfulness is true mark of a friend. In chapter 23, look down to verse 15. Now David's a, a ref, uh, I always say a refugee, but that's not it, a fugitive. David is a fugitive on the run. And it says, while David was at Horash in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. Now look at this. He's still on the run. He's out hiding. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horash and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will... Be second to you, even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained. This is their last meeting ever. The next time you're going to see them talking about this, David is weeping because he hears the news that Jonathan is dead. And so I want you to see that he makes the covenant in 18. In 19, he's faithful. In chapter 20, he's faithful. A few years later, in chapter 23, he's faithful yet again. 
And I, and I would just tell you that a friend loves at all times. A friend loves at all times. And a, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That's obviously an allusion to Jesus Christ, but I also want you to know that's talking about a good friend in Proverbs. At all times, no matter what your circumstances are, a true friend is steadfastly loyal to the covenants that he makes. And I want you to know something. When you are steadfastly loyal to the covenants you make, God loves it because you're like God. He loves for you to be steadfastly loyal. You see people who like this. They go, oh now, how can I bring glory to God? All I am is a silly, you know, eye doctor. All I am is a, is a silly old, you know, I just do this, right? You know, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a missionary. I don't, how can I bring glory to God? Well, maybe on Sundays if I teach, I bring glory to God. Or maybe if I work in the nursery, I bring glory to God. Somehow the pastors, everyone, everyone agrees that you bring glory to God if you do that. So maybe that's the case. But how can I really bring glory to God? I want you to know, men, now listen to me, men. When you're out by yourself in a restaurant and you're a married man and you're committed to one woman and all of a sudden another woman walks by who's very attractive and you don't look at her all over the place and you keep your eyes and your thoughts in the right place, God loves it. Do you know why? Because you're being loyal to the covenants you made that you were going to look on your wife in a special way. When, you, when someone else someday starts to flirt with you or put in thoughts in your heads that are wrong and you say, no, you know something? I'm committed. This is, this is going to stop. I'm going to tell you, God loves it. God loves loyal commitment to the covenant. And yet, all it seems to hear these days is people complaining, my husband's a bad guy, my wife's a bad guy, this friend let me down, somebody's discouraged. And, and one of the things we need to stop is asking ourselves, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is our hope in the Lord or is our hope in other people? Because if our hope is in the Lord, then we will realize that when even our friends fail us, we will say, do you know what? That's a sovereign hand of God allowing this into my life. Now's my chance to show steadfast covenant loyalty. And then God delights in it. It's something to get excited about. So a friend loves at all times. And don't forsake your friend. And watch this, everybody. Don't forsake the friend of your father. Is there long-term friendships in your family? Don't forsake those. Why? Because uh, it, they've proven their steadfast covenant loyalty to you. They've proven it by the way they've acted. Now, that's principle number one. What is a good friend? Can you tell me? Boy, you guys aren't listening. A good friend is constant. All right? Second thing I want you to see a good friend, watch this, a good friend, according to prompt, according to Proverbs, is honest with you. A good friend is honest with you. Reliable, faithful are the wounds, the bruises of a friend. Now watch this. Now watch this verse. You've got it all right here on the board. You don't need to change. Reliable, faithful are the wounds, the bruises of a friend. Bruises, Genesis 4.23, actual physical bruises. Proverbs 20 and 23 is talking about you know a drunkard. He wakes up and he goes, how did I get these bruises? And so, in other words, bruises, though, obviously doesn't mean that a friend beats you. And if you've got a friend that just comes up and slugs you in the arm as hard as he can every day, boy, that's a good friend. Thank you, thank you. You can just walk up, wham, thank you, brother, I know you love me. That's not what it means. But it, the bruises here means this. He bruises you with remarks of candor about your character or about decisions that you've made. A true friend is honest with you, faithful, reliable, are the bruises, the wounds of a friend. Now, watch this. But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. They're plentiful. The only other use of the word kiss there is in the Song of Solomon where it means, that's what it means. And here, here is this, reliable are the bruises of a friend, the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. We better stop and think about the kind of friends that you really want. Do you want a friend that is just a yes person? Do you want a friend that every time you say, how do I look? Beautiful, beautiful, love you guy, love you, hey, <laughs> is that what you want? You know, do you really want that? Those are plentiful. You can buy those guys. You, you, you remember, I remember a long time ago uh, seeing on one of those shows like Gomer Pyle where they were doing something in the studio and they were the director and there was the yes person. Whatever the director said, yes, man, you got it. You're right. Yes, yes. 
That's not what we want. We want somebody that can give remarks of candor. Now, did Jonathan and David do this? Well, I, I think so. Go to chapter 20 and look again at the first four verses. Watch what happens. Jonathan comes running, David comes running to Jonathan. What have I done? What's my crime? How have I wronged your father? He's trying to take my life. And look at Jonathan. Never. You're not going to die. My father doesn't do anything great or small without confiding to me. Why would he hide this from me? It's not so. I'm going to tell you, there's some tension there in their relationship. This is not just something where they just go, oh, okay, well, you say, Jonathan has to, it has to be proven to him. and He doesn't really get fully convinced of it until he dodges the spear, if you can remember. All right, then he knew. But I want you to notice, David says, David is serious about this. He takes note. I mean, this, this, let me tell you something. This is not one of these things where, if you were acting this out, J- David comes into the room, Jonathan, my friend, hark, I think my, your father must not like me. Why? He comes into the room, and, and, and David comes into the room and goes, hey, pal, you told me he wasn't going to try to kill me. Because remember, if we know the story, and David, Jonathan goes, hey, he's not going to try to kill you. Never. I would know about it. You're wrong. That's how this went. It went much more like that than, than the first scene. All right? <laughs> and then d- j- just to make sure he makes the point, David takes an oath. Yes, I'm going to tell you something. There's just a step between me and death, man. I'm a dead man. And then Jonathan takes him serious in verse 4. But then even go down to verse 9. Look at it again in verse 9. Jonathan says, never. If I had the least inkling my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? No way. So a friend is honest. In fact, look at this. Scripture goes on to say in Proverbs that open rebuke is better than secret love. Watch this. It's better to have somebody just call you on the phone, write you, I don't know about writing a letter, but look you in the face and say, you know something? I think you're wrong. That's a true friend. You need to want those kind of people. We need them in our life. Wisdom, if wisdom dictates your heart, you will be able to say, tell me the truth no matter what. Open rebuke is better than secret love. I was telling the story of not too long ago, um, a, a man in our church, I was getting ready to rebuke him because, for, for a certain situation. And, and, and I was trying to warm him up to, to get ready for the rebuke. And, and as I was trying to warm him up, he goes, hey, wait a minute, stop with all that stuff. He goes, just tell me, what is it that you're seeing? And I said, all right, here's what I'm seeing. And, and it was hard words. And he goes, thank you. Will you call me in two weeks to see if I followed through? You see, that's the person that has wisdom in their heart. Open rebuke, uncovered correction, chiding, reproof. People say, oh, but I was humiliated. Hey, it's better to have open rebuke than secret love or hidden or concealed. Love manifests itself by no rebuking word and therefore is morally useless. That's secret love. Secret love. Yes, person. Okay? Now that goes on to show you, I want to show you a couple other, on, on that point, I want to show you a couple other um, um, key, key words here. If I can find it real quickly. Hang on. Look here. A friend is honest with you. Look at some of these verses. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses, blows the wounds, cleans away evil. That's the use of some of those words. Better is open rebuke than secret love. Look at this. Whosoever flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his feet. To give flattery to someone without really rebuking them, without really telling them the truth, is to set a trap for them. You set them up in a trap. The person may think, well, I'm all right. A true friend will say, you know what? You're making a mistake. You're wrong. Look at this. He who rebukes a man will in the end gain more favor than he who has a flattering tongue. In the end, it's better to be rebuked. In the long run, it's going to help the person. And watch, I'm going to tell you, flattery is a trap and real friendships will pay dividends in the long run. That's what I want you to see. Now, 
with that, let's look at one more thing that a good friend will do, or, or the, the next thing that a good friend will do. A good friend, my friends, will give you counsel. Now, principle number one was a good friend will be faithful. Principle number two is a good friend is honest with you. And thirdly, will give you counsel. Now, let's just stop and look. Does David and Jonathan do this? Oh, yes. Look, look at the seriousness. Look at verse 12. Go down to verse 12 of chapter 20. Look at the serious counsel that Jonathan gives. Jonathan says to David, they're out walking in the field. By the Lord, the God of Israel, I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. If he's favorably disposed towards you, will not I send you word and let you know? But if my father is inclined to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away safely. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. And Jonathan makes a covenant with him. And I want, to, I want you to see that. There is the sweet, the Bible says this, the sweet part of giving counsel. Remember, he's faithful, he, he, he's honest, and his counsel is, is soulish. Look at this. In, in Proverbs 27.9, it says it's sweet to receive hearty, soulish, emotional, or with passion counsel. A good friend, listen, here's what the point is. A good friend like David and Jonathan. Jonathan looks into David's eyes and sees, my friend is really hurting. And as he senses the motion, the moment, he says, come on, let's go for a walk. He takes him out in the field, he puts his arm around him. Then he turns to him and he says, listen, let me tell you something. And he gives him this speech in verses 12 through 17, which is quite touching. He pours it on. He, he reminds him of the Lord's promise. He reminds him of his own commitment. He promises that he's going to be faithful to him. You can be assured, I'll tell you, if my dad says anything to me. And, and listen to what the Bible says. The Bible relates it like this. Look at, look at the way the verse actually states it. Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, and the pleasantness of one's friend springs from his earnest counsel. The pleasantness of one's friend springs from his soulish counsel. Can I tell you one of the great principles of friendship is to take your friend seriously? If, if the big deal is something that's not a big deal to you, just don't go, hey man, no big deal. Don't even worry about it. No, if that person is hurting and they come to you and ask you questions, be passionate, be soulish. It's from the soul. Be interested in the person. Take, take time with them. Listen to them. If they're your friend, care about them. Try to look at it from their perspective. Be involved in their life in that way. That is, the, that is it. That's the sweet part of this. Now watch. A good friend is faithful. A good friend will give counsel. And I want you to see this. The sweet of it, the bitter is the spark should fly at times. Do you know what that verse is? It's a verse that you've all quoted. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. And there's going to be times when the, the sparks are going to fly. That verse doesn't mean sweet fellowship. Iron sharpening iron is a picture of sweet fellowship? No, iron sharpening iron is the sparks are flying because here's two friends that disagree. Can I tell you, if you're, if you're the kind of person that, oh, don't talk to me like that. Or if you're the kind of person that, 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 that you, you can't receive a good chiding. You can't say, you know, that you're wrong and I disagree without just getting all upset. You, you know, you're not a very good friend. A good friend will give both soulish counsel and also the times the sparks will fly and it will have absolutely nothing to do with your friendship even though you strongly disagree. You know why? Because you're committed by a, 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 a commitment to Jesus Christ first and foremost and as a result of that, that's the basis of your friendship, not whether or not you dot every I and cross every T together. Oh, listen, listen to me. What is so wrong today in the Christian church is this. You've got to dye your eye and cross your T and be like everyone else in the congregation or else you're not going to be a part of us. And can I tell you that is so wrong? 
That is so very wrong. I want to see a church here at College Park full of friends, and I'm going to tell you something, literally, literally, weekly, sometimes even daily, I am crying out to God for good friendships, biblical friendships to develop. The kind of friendships where you can be mad at somebody and let them have it, and yet it's not going to ever, ever, ever stop the relationship. Because you are so committed to that person. You all know about it if you're married. You already know about it. But what I'm trying to say is this. You need to know about it on the relationship of a Jonathan and David. You need to know about it on the relationship of a friend. So what if you disagree? So what if you think the person did something stupid? So what if you, if you, you know what the point is that you can tell them that it's going to be best. You'll give them soulish counsel at the same time. There'll be time sparks will fly. Well, I'll tell you, friends, that, that's a good friendship. You see the sparks starting to fly a little bit there in the beginning of chapter 20. The last thing I want you to see is a friend is thoughtful. Let me just show you this. Don't outstay your welcome. David certainly didn't. <laughs> That's sort of a joke. All right. But don't outstay your welcome. Don't joke at the wrong time. Don't think light of a serious problem. And know when a joke has gone far enough. So a friend is thoughtful. A friend gives counsel. And you can look up those verses if you'd like. They're there. A friend gives counsel. A friend is honest with you. And a friend does what? What else? Okay, let's just go over this. Number one, a friend is constant and faithful, right? A friend is honest, right? Be honest with me. Is that the point? All right. A friend gives counsel, and a friend is thoughtful. Those are four principles of, of, a, of a good friendship. Now, the last thing I want to tell you, and it will be done, is this. Do you know that Jesus Christ was the friend of sinners? And the greatest friend of all in the Scriptures is the Lord Jesus Christ. And they said to him over and over, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law, they said, what are you doing? Why are you going to hanging out with them? And we sing the great hymn, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. And I want to encourage you from the life of David and Jonathan, do you know what you, you need? If you really want to grow, we need to get rid of the pristine. We need to get rid of the, you know, you know Swindoll said something years ago, and I actually preached it years ago. It was such a good statement. He said the local church needs to becoming, stop becoming less like a church and more like the local bar. He says, you go down to the local bar and you look at somebody and you tell them your troubles and they accept you. And can I tell you, we want friends that accept each other with this one point. I'm going to keep urging you to become like Christ. I'm going to keep urging you to obey the Scriptures. I'm going to keep urging you to go the right direction. And yes, I accept you, but boy, I'm going to tell you something. I, I, I want to be a friend to you, which means I've got to rebuke you, but it also means I'm going to give you soulish, passionate counsel. Can I tell you some of the great... In my own life, when I've been dark and discouraged, people have come to talk to me, called me on the phone, written me a letter, or come in to see me. And you know one of the things? Sometimes what they said didn't even mean anything because they didn't quite have the... They weren't zeroed in on the situation. But you know what? The soulish counsel that they gave... The fact that I could see that they were willing to reach out and care. Can I tell you, this is New Testament Christianity. To withdraw, to seem like you're not interested, or to act like you don't need people, you're wrong and you must repent of that. You've got to realize that we need each other. And then tell you something else. You see people sit around and go, yeah, but there's so much wrong with the church. And I trusted myself to somebody one time, and then they just really hurt me. And I'm just not going to do that. Listen, so in other words, you're going to be unbiblical because you had a bad experience. That's not right. You need to say, look, I'm committed to this principle. I'm going to be faithful no matter what. And God has called us to that, and, and we need to remember. So um, I'll take two, two questions, Q&A, just two questions on this. And that concludes today's expository word. Please join us again for more classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Take care.